The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. My name is Freddie Gray and I'm the Spectator's US editor. And I'm here to tell you, as if you didn't already know, that the 2020 presidential election is now over and Donald Trump appears to have lost. He isn't going away, however, not anytime soon. And it looks as though the last few weeks of a Trump presidency promised to be even more crazy, if that were possible, than the previous four or so years. We'll be discussing all that and more in the coming weeks. I'm joined today by Mary Eberstadt, who is a senior fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute and the author of Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. And we're going to be asking if fatherlessness is tearing America apart. Mary, you recently wrote an essay for First Things, the excellent Christian publication, in which you discussed this idea that the riots that we saw over the summer that I think disturbed a lot of people all over the world and confused a lot of people all over the world were to do with fatherlessness. Can you explain a little bit your thesis in that essay? Yes, thank you, Freddie. So first, let's give it a little bit of context. The riots that took place in the United States and the protests were unprecedented in American history. From late May into September, there were some 10,000 incidents of what's called unrest. And of those, some 500 turned violent. The violence was not limited to a couple of cities. This happened across the nation. So again, thinking about how unprecedented this is, I thought it was important to try and get at root causes. Now, we all know that the explanation given typically is this was all because of racism. And in the article, uh, Fury of the Fatherless, I dispose of that explanation because I don't think it holds up on inspection for several reasons. Uh, One is that the United States is a country in which the vast majority of people favor intermarriage. And you cannot sustain an argument about systemic racism in a social context like that. Also, Uh, The United States is a country with very well-integrated institutions, such as, most important, the churches and the American military. And the left, of course, doesn't like to deal with either of these institutions, so they are ignored. Anyway, disposing of the knee-jerk racism argument, we're left with the fact that these riots and protests require some kind of explanation. And what I believe has happened is that the fatherlessness of America has now poured out into the streets. And by fatherlessness, I mean several things. Number one, literal fatherlessness. Uh, Something like 65% of African-American kids are growing up without a father in the house. And surely that fraction is represented heavily in Black Lives Matter. So there is literal fatherlessness. It happens we know a lot about the results of this. We've had 60 years of social science, beginning with Daniel Patrick Moynihan's infamous report decades ago, 
indicating that fatherlessness is linked to a number of adverse outcomes for kids, not in every case. We're not saying this to beat up on deadbeat dads or single moms, but overall fatherlessness is tied to higher rates of drug use, promiscuity, educational failure, the list goes on and on. This is probably the best documented fact in sociology in America that no one wants to admit. But we know this. We know that fatherlessness, literal fatherlessness, is linked to social dysfunction. But I'm trying to widen the argument here because I think that it isn't only that young people are growing up without a literal paternal authority figure. It is also the case that organized religion has collapsed among the young. Uh, the fastest growing segment of young people, I'm talking about Zoomers and millennials in America, are the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, who profess no attachment to organized religion at all. So there is a second paternal principle that has collapsed on them. And there is also the fact that young Americans are shockingly unlikely to profess patriotism. So they're not attached in many cases to their country either. So what I'm trying to describe in the essay is this threefold collapse of any recognizable paternal principle for many of the Zoomers and millennials. And I think that collapse has left them, first of all, disoriented and unattached. And this collapse is what's driving the desire to attach to these collective political identities, the kind of things that we see in identity politics. I think this is a frantic, increasingly desperate attempt on the part of young people who have no North Star to find one. And that's the dynamic that I'm trying to describe in the piece. You say that um, even though this is a very established sociological fact now, it isn't acknowledged. Why do you think there is a resistance to that fact being acknowledged? Is there a sort of pride in the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s that says that it can't be right, that the things we agreed were right in the 60s and 70s are now wrong? Is that what causes it? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things, Freddie. One cause is that no one wants to make other people feel bad, and that's understandable. That's very human. No one wants to criticize single mothers. They do heroic work. And at this point, in the United States at least, just about everyone is affected in some way by this kind of fallout, by family rupture of one kind or another. So that gives us a sort of prosaic set of reasons why people have trouble discussing this. But I think the deeper reason is the one that you suggest, which is that there is fierce resistance, especially although not only on the left, to having second thoughts about any aspect of the sexual revolution and its fallout. We see this absolutism, this conviction that there can't possibly be anything worth criticizing here. This is why, for example, American feminists defend abortion up until the second before birth, because they are absolutists about the sexual revolution. And we see the same thing in the resistance to well-documented sociology about what happens when you take fathers out of the home and what happens especially to boys who don't have an authority figure present. So I think that for those two sets of reasons, there is fierce resistance that I think has to give at some point, because now that we see these results in the streets, when we see social dysfunction on the scale that we saw this summer, 
it's past time for the left to get over it and to have some kind of reasonable discussion about this. That was going to be my next question. I mean, do you think that the sort of evidence of a crisis now is such that people are going to be willing to reconsider the issue of fatherlessness and take seriously quite how bad it is? Well, certainly people have ignored evidence before. So, for example, there's a lot of complaint and hand-wringing about America's mass incarceration and no attention given to the well-documented ties between fatherless homes and kids who get into trouble with criminal justice. So there is a long-standing practice of ignoring these connections. On the other hand, I would like to think that it isn't only that the protests and riots might force some attention to this underlying issue. There's also the fact that people are suffering. And this is something that I try to get at in the book, Primal Screams. It's not just that people are disconnected and desperate for community and finding these identitarian groups to bond to. There is a suffering that drives this desire to attach. When we see in identity politics, these people who are screaming about how they're victims, I think there is a reality there. You know, it's very easy to dismiss them as snowflakes, as conservatives are wont to do. But I think there is something authentic going on. People who scream about being victims all the time really are victims, but they don't understand their victimhood properly. They're not victims of these isms, you know, or of heteronormativity or the patriarchy or the other abstractions that they point to. They are victims in many cases of the radical social changes since the 1960s that have left many human beings, especially young human beings, living in ways that we're not meant to live. And what I mean by that is that we are social creatures. We are like other animals. We learn by watching, we learn by imitating. And the sexual revolution has taken people out of the lives of the young. It has shrunk the family, it's disrupted the family. And so social learning has been uh, impeded in this massive way. Again, I think we see this at the grassroots level uh, in some of the political theater that poured out into American streets. But my bottom line here is that this suffering that is manifest, uh, this unreason that comes along with it, this irrationalism of the sort that we saw displayed this summer, uh, that this might finally force attention to the issue of fatherlessness, literally, and also fatherlessness with a capital F, the way in which disconnection from causes larger than oneself, from churches, from a metaphysical horizon, has also uprooted people and increased the level of unreason out there. I, I can see how society might shift in a healthier direction, but do you think it's possible for individuals to acknowledge the real reason why they're damaged, if what you're saying is right, that they blame racism when what they're really angry about is the fact that they never had a proper family? Do you think it's actually possible for people to acknowledge the hurt that the failures of their parents has caused them? Well, this kind of argument is always uphill, especially in the present moment. But on the other hand, one analogy that I come back to is the example of tobacco smoking. 
which was ubiquitous when I was a kid. I can remember people could smoke in hospital rooms. And it took a lot of argumentative work to change the social consensus about tobacco. And yet it was effectively changed across the Western world. So what did it? It was constant uh, attention to the facts of the matter, to the harm that was being inflicted, even though there was great resistance to acknowledging the, the possible physical harm of tobacco. So that analogy gives me hope that just because 60 years of sociology hasn't made a dent doesn't mean that it's impossible. You talk about filial piety to the nation, essentially patriotism as a kind of fathering influence. What is the relationship between not having a father and not loving your country? Is there a relationship and what is it? I think there is. And I think we're only beginning to think about things in this way. It looks as if filial piety is like a muscle that has to be exercised. And the reason I say that is that these declines, decline of a father in the home, decline of religion, decline of patriotism, are obviously not happening in a vacuum. They are in simultaneous decline. And that leads us to think that perhaps the absence of a paternal figure means that people are unable to understand paternal authority in other realms of life. That sounds very abstract, Freddie, but I think we see very clearly in some of the theater surrounding the protests this summer that some kind of animus about the family is at the root of what people are feeling. We saw people, protesters, disturbing families, again, in cities, city after city, for dining outside. We saw meals disrupted at restaurants. We saw protesters go into residential neighborhoods. And again, in many cities, shining flashlights, waking people up in the middle of the night, screaming so that people would get out of their beds. Where were those people? They were at home with their families. And I think we saw this most starkly in the example of the statues that were pulled down. You know, it started with Confederate statues and then suddenly all kinds of statues were coming down from public spaces. And there was a lot of head scratching about this on the part of the commentariat. People said, what is this about? Well, I think what it's about is very obvious because what was being pulled down was anything that looked like a father. It started with the Confederate statues, but then it became the statues of town fathers or city fathers or religious fathers, as in the example of Sarah in California. Founding fathers. Yes, founding fathers. Anything that looked like a father was the object of animus. So again, I think looking closely at what happened this summer in the United States, we see that there's this great familial discontent and I think envy of people who have been able to, despite the sexual revolution, continue living in intact families. And that to me is the saddest aspect of all of this is that there is knowledge out there that something is desperately awry. And people who suffer in this way are taking it out on people who don't. And that's what I think was revealed by the protests this summer. As you mentioned in your piece, in the Black Lives Matter manifesto, 
there is this commitment to stop, to disrupt, or to end the prescribed Western nuclear family. I can't remember quite how they phrase it, but it's something like that, and replace it with villages. That clearly hints that there is some sort of subconscious understanding that this is to do with the family. Very much so. It's interesting because Black Lives Matter took that language off its website. What was most revealing about that language was what was not there, and that was the mention of the word fathers. It was all about children and, quote, parents. But again, the lack of the paternal principle was evident, and not only in that document. It's interesting, Freddie, because the founding document of identity politics itself, which dates from 1977, was a declaration by a group of radical African-American feminists. And in that document, which is the first time the word identity politics is used, there's also no mention of fathers. There is talk of women and talk of children, but no mention of fathers. And in fact, what that document says, in effect, is we are giving up. We women are giving up on the men in our lives. We don't think anyone will stand up for us unless they're just like us. This is the first statement of identity politics, and it's a very sad manifesto. But there again, we see this continuity in identity politics of the absence of the father and the implied connection between that and the desire to attach to some other political collective as a substitute. Is the problem perhaps that feminism has become the language which we use to address all important issues? And this leaves a lot of men feeling totally isolated, not just fatherlessness, but sort of non-existent in the world as men. They don't understand their duties as men because no one ever talks about what men are supposed to do. I think the best book written on that subject was now almost 20 years old by a sociologist named Lionel Tiger. And it was called The The Decline of Males. And it is largely about how giving in effect reproductive control to women exclusively, that is control over uh, their bodies, their decision about abortion, et cetera, had sidelined men, he argued, and made them ineffectual and unimportant in socially destructive ways. And I think he really nailed it. And the interesting thing about Tiger is that he was not a religious thinker. He described religion as toxic. He was an a-religious, perhaps even anti-religious thinker. And yet he zeroed in on one of the most important consequences of the sexual revolution, which was that making women solely responsible for reproductive decisions was going to have the effect of sidelining men in an important way. And I think he got it dead right. And that would explain why we see, we read a lot about rising male suicide rates, increasing depression among men, etc, etc. Yes, very much so. I mean, I think what it comes down to, Freddie, is that if we accept that there are differences between the sexes, which I don't think is going to be terribly controversial among us, men at some point in their lives often face a decision. Are they going to be protectors or predators? And if men have nothing to protect, they are potentially a socially destructive force. Again, getting back to the protests and the riots, I think we saw that very clearly. It's not just that many are coming from fatherless homes and don't have an example in front of them. They are also, because of that fact, 
slow to create their own families. So if you look at what happened in Portland, where night after night, you have the same protesters turning up, being arrested by the police if they're violent enough and then being released and showing up the next night, you have to ask yourself, what kind of men are able to stay out all night uh, creating mayhem and coming back for more the next night too? These are not men with children at home and wives at home. They are disconnected, rootless. Their personal biographies, as I know from checking on some of the names that surfaced in the news, are almost always indications that fatherlessness has something to do with the course that they've been set on. In the riots, there seemed to be, just from looking at it on the internet, you could see there were quite a lot of young women who were also involved in the aggression. So do you think that daughters feel the pain of fatherlessness as much as men? Oh, yes, of course, but it manifests itself differently. And the reason that we focus on men is that they are potentially more prone to violence, as we saw this summer. But there's a lot of sociology on what happens to fatherless girls. And again, it's not true in every case, but uh, the same kinds of problems, the same kind of psychiatric trouble, educational trouble, surface in both sexes. I think you explore this more in your book than in the essay, but another thing that connects to all this is the rising phenomenon of transsexualism and the the growing debate about trans rights and so on. Do you think that's a way in which identity politics is being driven on or accelerated by a lack of family structure and a lack of a father figure for a lot of people? Yes, absolutely. You know, a lot of people look at the phenomenon of transsexualism and they say, well, how did this ever happen? You know, we we were all for same-sex marriage, but we never meant for things to come to this. I look at it differently, Freddie. I think given what has happened to the family, given the radical new ways in which we are living, it would be a miracle if we didn't have massive sexual confusion out there. So First, there's the fact of fatherlessness, meaning that there's no model for healthy masculinity in many homes. Also in those homes, we have single moms who are very often and understandably angry at the absence of a partner. And what is the message that they are sending to their kids, especially to their boys? It can't help but be the message that men are bad. This message gets reinforced by the dominant culture in which feminism has a very loud voice. Also, at the same time, the family has shrunk. People have fewer siblings than they used to. And I think this is terribly important. I try and get into it in primal screens, especially, because what that means is that the ordinary way of learning about the differences between the sexes by watching, say, brothers and sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, has shrunk for many people. They don't have access to that kind of knowledge anymore. So again, the wonder is not that transsexualism has become a vocal participant in this discussion. The the wonder would be if it didn't, given what we've done to ourselves as a species since the sexual revolution. Everything you're saying makes perfect sense to me, and I agree with all of it, I think. But I do wonder, in the back of my mind, whether 
I agree with a lot of these things because I'm a sort of conservative and I tend to think that the world's kind of <laughs> always going to the dogs and that the kind of post-Christian universe is all deeply depressing. Do you think there might be a tendency among perhaps you or, or people who think like me to just assume that because Christianity is out of the picture, all these other things are unravelling in the ways that Christians said they would for a long time? Well, you know, it's funny because in a commentary on my book, Primal Screams, prominent liberal Mark Lilla made that point. He said, conservatives are addicted to narratives of decline. And it's a nice pithy sentence. But my point is that we are seeing decline and we're seeing it in empirically measurable ways. So leaving aside the riots and the protests, the shocking rise in psychiatric disorders among the young is one thing we can point to. Anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts. This is something that I have spent the last 15 years trying to nail down in some of my work because I think it's terribly important. Clinicians agree that this is not just a statistical artifact. This isn't just something that they're getting better at diagnosing. This is for real. So where is that coming from? Again, I think the logical connection there is that it's coming from the sexual revolution's dislocations, from the loneliness of not having enough people in one's life, and the utter bewilderment at not having social knowledge of other human beings, not having models to follow. I think that's uh, one place we can point to and say, look, this isn't just conservatives making stuff up as usual. This is something that's real. That's very interesting because we often hear about the effect of coddling and how that causes anxiety. And that's, I suppose, is over-parenting, you know, being too protective of children and not exposing them to risk or danger. How does that square with the idea that children are not having fathers or family structures in the way they're, they're meant to be? Yeah, I think there's some truth to the coddling theory. I think parents may become overprotective because they sense that kids are not living in a way as conducive to human thriving these days as they used to. And so I think there's room for both theories there. But I think the harder pill to swallow is what I'm putting out there, which is that since the sexual revolution, we are living in ways inimical to the kind of social creatures that we are. I think we also see this documented empirically in loneliness studies, which are like the fastest growing stock in sociology. And you can find them across the Western world. This again is something that's happened since the sexual revolution. People who were told and believed that they could do whatever they want, that they didn't have to live in oppressive family structures who, thanks to the freedom uh, conferred by contraceptive technology, could live without children, suddenly get to their 80s, and they have no one in their lives. This is what loneliness studies is all about, whether they're in Japan or Denmark or the United States or anywhere else in the graying Western world. Clearly, this is evidence of damage. And although it's depressing to contemplate, it does give facts on the side of the argument that the sexual revolution has created damage that we have only begun to encounter. Well, as you say, it is a difficult pill to swallow, but I wondered whether you think there are grounds for optimism and what those grounds are. I mean, recently, 
I saw some statistics about the American divorce rate declining dramatically. And you can read that two ways. One, it's that people aren't getting married at all. But also it's that perhaps people are, once they do enter into marriage, are taking it more seriously. And that is presumably a good thing. Yeah, I think there is a learning curve here for sure. Some time back, I wrote a 6,000 word essay about American popular music. It was called Eminem is Right. And it was all about the dominance of broken families as a theme in American popular culture. And that's especially true of Eminem, of course. So I think all of these years of rappers and popular artists talking about what happened to them because they grew up in disrupted homes is having an effect. I think it's sinking in. And so is the real life experience of growing up that way. I think it's made people on the one hand, perhaps too fearful about entering into commitments themselves. But on the other hand, I think it's made young people more serious about those commitments. And that's what we're seeing in these new numbers on divorce in America. And that is encouraging. Well, Mary, I think we'd better end it there. But it's been a great privilege to talk to you. And thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Freddie. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. (laughs) 